Our text this morning comes from Proverbs chapter 31. If you happen to be using one of the pew Bibles, chair Bibles, one of those Bibles in the seat in front of you, uh, you'll find that on page 552 of that Bible. If you're just joining us, uh, this morning we're in actually the last uh, sermon of our summer series on the book of Proverbs. Uh, And each week as we've been looking at the book of Proverbs, we've been asking this question of what what does Proverbs teach us about becoming wise, about becoming wiser people? Uh, And this morning we're going to take a look at at what's actually one of the most famous passages in Scripture. And before we do that, let's pray together and then we'll read from Proverbs 31. Let's pray together. Father, we come into this place this morning from a lot of different places. Some of us very encouraged and glad to be here. Some of us very discouraged and disillusioned. Some of us very thankful for your work in our lives. Some of us wondering if you even exist, much less care enough about our lives to take part in them. Wherever we are this morning, we pray that by your Spirit that you would meet us and teach us and encourage us and draw us to you in Jesus through your word. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, Proverbs chapter 31, verses 10 through 31. An excellent wife, who can find? She's far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax, works with willing hands. She's like the ships of a merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff, and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of snow. She's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. Okay, we read a passage like this. Again, a very familiar passage uh, for many. It is one of the most famous passages in the Bible. And we have to ask the question that in one sense we ask with every text, but it's, it's kind of right on the surface for us here. What do we do with this? You know, what, what, what do we do with this picture of the excellent wife? Um, you know, is this, is this an itemized list uh, of what it means to be a faithful, godly woman and wife? Or is it a checklist for young men to use in evaluating a potential spouse? Uh, is this evidence uh, that the Bible is hopelessly patriarchal and repressive? Is this a proof text that wives are supposed to be stay-at-home mothers? 
You know, there are, I found this on the web, there are websites, entire websites devoted to the Proverbs 31 woman, what it is and how you two can become one. Okay, so it matters, not simply what this uh, text of Scripture means, but what it is there for, what it's there to do. And again, that's true of all of Scripture, but I think it's on the surface for us here because it's familiar and because in some ways it feels so loaded, at least it will for some of us. Okay, here's what I think we're going to see this morning because I think this is what uh, this, this portion of Scripture does for us. All summer long in all the book of Proverbs, we've been talking about wisdom and living a wise life. Okay, and here we see that wisdom teaches us to live a life that is beautiful. And this text gives us a three-dimensional picture of what a wise and beautiful life looks like. Okay, it's going to show us three things about a beautiful life. What it is, and what it's for, and how to get it. Okay, beautiful life. What it is, what it's for, how to get it. Okay, first thing, what it is... A beautiful life, this picture of a beautiful life. What does it mean to have and to live a beautiful life? A beautiful life, in the words and the pictures of Proverbs, is a life that embodies wisdom. Okay, a beautiful life is a life that embodies wisdom. This is a picture of life that embodies all the aspects of wisdom that are taught throughout the book of Proverbs. If you've been hearing these sermons or reading through Proverbs yourself, you're going to recognize that this is, this, this is the grand finale of Proverbs. Okay, in one sense it is because it comes at the very end, but it's also this picture that demonstrates everything that Proverbs talks about lived out in an actual human life. A life that embodies wisdom in a few areas. Here, a few things about this embodied wise life. First, it's heroic. Okay, that might not be a word you'd expect in the, in the context of this poem, but the, interestingly, in this poem, the, the, both in the form and the vocabulary of this poem, echoes heroic poetry that exalts uh, the powerful warrior, both in scripture and in other places in ancient Near Eastern literature. This is cast in the form of a heroic poem. Okay, you read in the ESV in chapter in verse 10, translates to the first phrase there is an excellent wife. Um, your translation might say something different. Another way to translate that phrase is a valiant wife. Okay, because this word in Hebrew it has to do with strength. It has to do with power. It's a word used for mighty warriors, a valiant person, and in this case, a valiant woman and a valiant wife. This heroic vocabulary kind of continues through. If you look at verse 11, you get this somewhat bland. It says that her, her husband lacks no gain. Well, literally the word there is plunder or spoil. Everywhere else that this word is used, it has to do with, with the treasures that are won in battle. Okay, and this is what she provides, it says, for her husband. Verse 17, it says, she dresses herself with strength. Literally, she girds up her loins with strength. She ties the belt around it. She prepares for action. Again, a phrase that's often used in military context. It's one of readiness, of preparedness, of powerfulness. That's who this woman is. And she is being honored. She's being celebrated for this. Okay, this... This poem, which is what this section of scripture is, it's this self-contained poem. We're going to talk about that more in a minute. But it is, it's a celebration of this woman, and it stands in, in really sharp contrast to everything else in the ancient Near Eastern culture that was said about women in poetry. Okay, because poems, what they typically did when they exalted women, they exalted women for their beauty, for their sexual prowess, for their desirability. 
And here this poet says, here is what we're going to celebrate about this woman. Wisdom embodied, a wise life, one that shines, one that's radiant. Very different from anything else in the world at that time when people wrote poems about women. Okay, so it's heroic. Second thing is it's complete. Okay, this poem, verses 10 through 31, one poem, it's an acrostic, okay, which means that in Hebrew... Every verse begins with the succeeding letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Okay, so in English, if we were to do this, we'd have a 26-line poem, and the first line would start with A, and the second line would start with B. Okay, that's what the poet does in Hebrew. It's difficult to do that. It's, it's, it's a poetic form that takes great discipline and use with words to be able to do that and, and pull it off. And this uh, poet does that. It's hard to see that in English, but the reason that's significant it's complete. As one commentator says, this is the A to Z of a wise life. Okay, this is a poem that seeks to give a full picture of what a wise embodied life looks like. And if you look at the things it said about this woman, this wife, uh, this wisdom is on display in every area of her life. I mean, look at the list of things that are here. She's industrious. She's diligent. She's not lazy. One of the um, values that's held up throughout Proverbs, the value of industriousness versus laziness. She stays up late at night working into the night. She's up early in the morning before the sun comes up. She has no fear for winter because she's worked ahead to provide for her family. She's skilled. She's skilled in making all kinds of things, of crafts and knitting and working with a spindle and a distaff. She can do everything in the home, caring for her family. She's a wise speaker. A few weeks ago we talked about the emphasis in the book of Proverbs about using our words wisely. She's a wise speaker. She says that her words are filled, verse 26, her words are full of wisdom and kindness. Now kindness here doesn't just simply say, doesn't simply mean, you know, she says really nice things to you. Kindness is the word that you see elsewhere in scripture that has to do with God's covenantal faithful love. Those are the words that are on her lips. These words that reflect the covenant faithfulness of God for his people. She speaks kindly. She speaks well. She uses her words well. She's a wise businesswoman. She not only provides clothing and supplies for her family, she sells them to the local merchants. Verse 24, she's, the overflow of her house is being sold to the merchants around them in her town. She manages the household income. She uses it to buy valuable real estate. She turns those investments into fruitful use. She plants a vineyard. She raises grapes. She's attentive to the relationships in her family, her husband, her children, her maidservants. Verse 20, she cares for the poor and the needy. This is the A to Z of a wise and fruitful life, a complete picture of that. And now you might have your own list of things that are trying to make yourself into a wise person or a wise life. Um, if, you're, if you're familiar with uh, Ben Franklin, he had his own list of these virtues that he was trying to inculcate in his life. Um, and I'm, I'm going to look up a little bit on, on a website, and I'm just going to quote for you what it had to say. Here's what it says about Ben Franklin. Around 1730, while he was in his late 20s, Benjamin Franklin listed 13 virtues that he felt were an important guide for living. These virtues consisted of, and here they are, temperance, silence, order, resolution, frugality, industry, sincerity, justice, moderation, cleanliness, tranquility, chastity and humility. It may be wise to worthwhile to consider them in your own life. Franklin's application. Ben Franklin tried to lead his life following these virtues. He placed each one of the virtues on a separate page in a small book that he kept with him for most of his life. He would evaluate his performance with regard to each of them on a daily basis. 
He would also select one of the virtues to focus on for a full week. Franklin often emphasized these virtues in his Poor Richard's Almanac, and later in a letter to his son William, he gave the list of virtues, recommending that William follow them too. And then this website says, following the virtues. The list of 13 virtues is certainly an admirable guide to try to follow. Okay, we're going to come back to Ben Franklin, how well he did follow in his list. But these lists of what makes a wise and fruitful life, this, the completeness shown in this poem has to do with a wisdom and a life of wisdom and beauty that permeates everything. <clears throat> About a year ago, I think it was for Mother's Day, I gave Elizabeth, my wife, this plush white bath towel, okay, and it was it was monogrammed with her initials on it. She thought it was the greatest thing, like just one of those simple sort of like you know what a great towel to have after take a shower in the morning. One of the simple pleasures in life. She loved it, hit it out of the park. I couldn't believe it. wasn't even expensive. It wasn't even expensive. Okay. <laughs> so this towel. Uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, when I, being the gracious, helpful husband that I am, uh, did some of the laundry for us. I was trying to economize. So the towel, some old shirts, a brand new pair of blue socks in the wash all at the same time. A couple hours later, I had to come to Elizabeth, and I said, um, your, your towel is a little, it's a little blue. <laughs> and from far away, you could see these couple blue streaks going down, and she was very gracious. She was like, oh, yeah, well, that's it's no big deal. But as she got closer, she was like, it's, it's blue all the way through. <laughs> yeah. Because I had washed them badly, I threw my socks in, and what happened? There was this dye that permeated the whole thing, that changed the whole tent and changed the whole towel. And what's the writer of Proverbs saying? He's saying that Proverbs, when it gets down, when that wisdom, when it gets down into our life, has to permeate every aspect of our life. It colors everything about our life. And this wise woman, this Proverbs 31 woman, is living a life that is permeated, that is saturated with wisdom, and all the pieces flow together. Now, if you've ever played a sport, you know that if you're going to be any good at the sport, you have to practice the fundamentals, whatever the fundamentals are for that sport. When I was about 12 or 13, um, I took some tennis lessons. Uh, it didn't help much, but I, I took some tennis lessons. So when you take tennis lessons, what do you do? You, you, spend, you spend 20 minutes hitting forehands, forehand after forehand after forehand, and backhands, come up to the net, volley after volley after volley. And what's the idea? That at the end of the day, you're going to be a star tennis practicer. <laughs> you know, not at all. What's, what's the idea? The idea is that by practicing those fundamentals over and over and over again, that when the situation comes that you're actually playing a game, that you're going to be able to put all those pieces together and play well. Because no tennis game involves simply hitting forehands or simply hitting backhands. You have to be able to master them all and use them at the appropriate time. And this woman, this wise and virtuous woman, this valiant woman, is one who has mastered the fundamentals and uses them in every area of her life. She's skillful. She's wise. She's able to, she's able to enter into her life skillfully at every point. Okay, it permeates everything. Third thing we, we see here, it's valuable. Look at um, just the first verse or two there in verse 10. An excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. Who can find? She is rare. She is to be sought after. Hard to find. And she is more precious than jewels. What's he saying? There are many things in this world that are of great wealth and of great virtue and of great worth. And this is more important than all of them. She is of, she is of greater worth than jewels. She's valuable. And the things that you should desire in your life, this should be at the top. 
Okay, and then the last thing about it we see here, not only is it, um, is it valuable, but it's also contextualized. Okay, what does that mean? What would happen if you took Proverbs 31, and some people have done this to their detriment, and simply tried to lift this from the pages of Scripture and then hammer this word for word into your own life? Okay, a simple one-to-one transfer. What what would that mean? Well, it would mean you'd be in a lot of trouble because what what would that involve for you? Well, it's going to involve that if you don't know how to knit, sew, and weave, you're going to need to pick up those skills early on. Okay, it's not enough simply that you take good care of your children, your husband, your family, but you, you also have to have maid servants essentially employees that are part of this work with you, and you need to get up before the sun gets up in the morning to make enough food for them as well. Okay, you're going to need a real estate license because you're going to be a land speculator. When you see the field that you need, you're going to buy that. Okay, you're going to need to learn how to work a vineyard because you're going to need to go out and plant grapes and make good wine from it. There's, is it starting to sound a little oppressive? <laughs> there's, a lot, there's a lot of skills you're going to have to pick up that might not already be yours, and you could spend about the next 20 years going to tr- enough trade schools to pick those up. Or we can see that in this passage of Scripture, what we have is contextualized wisdom. Okay, we have a woman in this culture using all the gifts that she's been given wisely, making a beautiful life out of them. And we're called to do the same thing, even though our lives might look very different than this. What this poem, I think, actually exhorts us to is that we are people who have to contextualize wisdom. Your life. The situations God has given you, the relationships God has given you, the skills he has given you, the passions he has given you. How are these going to be used wisely to build a beautiful, wise life that is of service to others? You can't simply do this one-to-one imitation. Instead, we have to say, here is an actual picture of wisdom embodied, lived out in a human life. What's it going to mean for us to embody it and live it out in our own lives as well? Okay, wise life, a beautiful life. What is it? Second thing, what's it for? In the words of Proverbs, a wise life, a beautiful life, is for the good of others. And that's stamped all over this particular poem. We said last week that in the words of of Proverbs, in the book of Proverbs, we talked about righteousness versus unrighteousness. Okay, and we said that a righteous person is somebody that disadvantages themselves in order to advantage others. And an unrighteous person, or another word in Proverbs that's used is wicked, an unrighteous, a wicked person is someone who disadvantages others for their own good. Okay, and what we see consistently in the book of Proverbs and in this poem is that she is a righteous woman, that she is at work for the good of others, even above her own good. I mean, look at it. She's, she's at work for the good of her household. See the blessing that she is for her husband, verses 10 and 11, an excellent wife who can find. Verse 11, the heart of her husband trusts in her. He will have no lack of plunder, of spoil. At the end of the poem, verses 28 and 29, her husband praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. She has been of great benefit to her husband. And it's the same with her children. Her children, at the end of the poem, right there, are standing with the husband, praising her. Verse 15, She rises while it's yet night, provides food for her household, portions for her maidens. Her household is not just her husband and her children. It's it's the servants that are part of the household as well. She is giving herself for the good of others. Okay, but it doesn't stop at just her household. It goes on to her whole community. 
Verse 24, the, again, the fruitfulness of her home, it's spilling over into the community, and she's, it's, it's benefiting the merchants of her town. She's contributing to the overall good of her society. Verse 20, she cares for the poor and the needy. Her circle of concern is not just her family. And then interestingly, look at verse 23. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Okay, what's going on here? It says that her husband is this respected elder in the land, and then he sits at the city gates. Okay, the, try as I might, I can't get past this. The visual Im, image I always have here is if you've ever seen the movie Barbershop or ever gone to a men's barbershop, <laughs> you get this picture of like all these old guys around chewing the fat all day long when you sort of think, isn't there something more productive that all these guys should, should be doing with their time? You get this picture of the, he sits at the city gate. I mean, you know, sitting around chatting all day while his wife is, you know, working her fingers to the bone. Okay, that's not what's going on here. Uh, what this does mean is that the elders of the land, those were, these were those who cared for the civic concerns of their town. Okay, they're the ones who judged uh, legal cases when they were brought to them. They were the ones that made the weighty decisions for uh, the good of the community. In one sense, they had both their hands in politics and in law. They were giving themselves in their time for the good of the entire community. Now, for her husband to be able to do this, as one commentator says, she is a primary breadwinner in her home, and thereby she allows her husband to attend to the civic good. Okay, he is able to go do this because she is being this person at home. Okay, now what does that tell us? Well, she and her husband are a team. They have a common vision. They have a common goal that they are pursuing. They have a common purpose for their marriage. Together, they are concerned for the good of their community. And in their marriage, this is the way it works out for them to most effectively play out that calling in their lives. They have different gifts, they have different roles, but a shared purpose. Um, look at verse 11. Again, it sounds bland in English, but um, it's actually a remarkable statement. It says, the heart of her husband trusts in her. Okay, everywhere else in Scripture when it talks about you, the, your heart trusting ex, in something, except one little example in the book of Judges, everywhere else, people are exhorted never to trust in anything except their God. Only God is to be trusted in in any sort of ultimate way. And right here it says that this husband trusts in his wife, that their bond is that close, that her care is that profound, that their trust for each other is that well established, that he knows that he can trust for his family, and that together they can pursue this common vision. Because his wife is trustworthy. It is this profound point of connection for them. Okay, now what would it look like for your marriage to have this common goal, the same kind of shared partnership? What would it look like for wisdom not only to be embodied in your own life, but in your marriage as well? And you might not have any idea right now. Maybe you haven't thought about your marriage that way at all. But doesn't it sound like a good question to ask? Okay, so there's the conversation topic for your next date out with your spouse. What is it that we are in together? What is our calling together as a married couple, as a family? How are we going to live a life that is wise and beautiful together? And this passage gives us a picture, again, a countercultural picture of what beauty is. Be a beautiful life is one that shines because of the blessing that it brings to those around you. Again, for her, it's in her home, it's in her community, it's with her marriage. Uh, verse 30, again, 
One of the most famous verses in all the Old Testament, charm and physical beauty are deceitful and vain. Now, you have to hold this at the same time with Proverbs chapter 5 that talks about exalting and, and enjoying the wife or the beauty of your spouse. Song of Psalms talk, songs talks about um, enjoying physical beauty. It's not that physical beauty is a bad thing, but it's not an ultimate thing. It's not that it's a harmful thing, but it's something that doesn't completely go the distance. What is the author saying here? Uh, that, there, that these are relative but not ultimate goods. There's something better than a beautiful figure or a handsome face or a winning smile. It's a beautiful life, a life that, bring, that brings flourishing and good to others, a wisdom-embodied life. Okay, now, in what ways are you trying to make yourself beautiful? What's the picture of beauty that you are embracing for yourself? I think I would be more beautiful if. Or, maybe more pointedly, what picture of beauty are you holding up for your spouse? I think I would be more beautiful if. I think my spouse would be more beautiful if. She lost 10 pounds. She took better care of herself. Took better care of our home. Spent less money. If he didn't complain so much about his work, if he got a promotion and a raise, if he were better with our kids, if he made more money, what's your picture of a beautiful life? And what's the picture of a beautiful life that you're holding up for yourself, your spouse, and others? Because you are communicating your expectations for a beautiful life to those around you, profoundly for yourself and profoundly for your spouse if you're married. Brings up another question. Why do you want what you want? Your picture of a beautiful life. Why do you want it? Uh, Here's my longstanding picture of the beautiful life that I've been trying to fabricate for myself that I would be the good guy. As I look back over the course of my life, the threads of my life all point in this direction, that I've been trying to be that guy. And oftentimes for all the wrong reasons. We talked about righteousness being the righteous are those who disadvantage themselves for the advantage of others. What Fake righteousness is disadvantaging yourself for the advantage of yourself. Okay, Serving others, not ultimately for their own good, but for your own good. When I was in high school, my senior year, we'd have to have, we had to have these scheduled periodic uh, meetings with our college counselor. So we were trying to, our school's great hope and our parents' great hope is that we would go and leave high school at some point and do something after that. So you go to meet with the college counselor and we had this one scheduled meeting. I walked into her office, was ushered in there and she wasn't there yet. I sat down in the chair facing her desk and on the corner of her desk was the manila folder that had my name on it. <laughs> got my name on it. That's practically mine. So I picked up the folder and I opened it up and I started to read, among other things, it has your transcript, it has, it has the letters of recommendation that your, uh, that your teachers write for you. So I'm reading the letter of recommendation from my teacher and coach. And somewhere in there he says that, um, that Brandon is conscientious almost to a fault. And I thought that was just, I thought that was a badge of honor. It's working for me. I'm being the good guy, and it's paying off. But I didn't realize I was using that only to enrich myself. It's interesting, you get down to the end of this poem, and what happens? She is praised. Her husband, her children, they rise up and call her blessed. Her husband says, may she be praised in the city gate. May her virtue be on on display for everyone, because it is praiseworthy. 
But you can't pursue the last three verses of this poem without tainting the whole thing. She was praised because she was praiseworthy. Here I was spending my high school career trying to get praise and fabricate a life that would somehow lead to that. It is an outgrowth of her beauty that she is praised. It wasn't her goal and it can't be ours. If you could get the life that you want, would it be beautiful? What would its effect be on the people around you? Why do you want what you want for your life? All this is just another way, this writer of Proverbs, is another way of saying what Jesus himself said. Somebody asked him to, to boil down what, is, what does it mean to live a good, faithful, beautiful life. And he said it boils down to two things. Love God with all your heart and your soul and your strength and your mind with all that you are. And love your neighbor as yourself. And everything that's spelled out for us here in this poem concentrates on that, the second half of that. Love your neighbor as yourself. Give yourself for the good of others. What is beauty for? What is a beautiful life for? It's for the good of others. Okay, now the third thing. Not only what is it and what's it for, but how do we get it? How do we get a beautiful life? How are we going to incarnate wisdom in our life? Give me the list. Give me the list so I can do it. Okay, let me, two people in their list. Go back to Benjamin Franklin. Talked about this list of virtues. Let me, let me read the rest of the article for you. Franklin's efforts. Although Franklin tried to follow them himself, he sometimes went astray from his good intentions. For example, in his almanac, poor Richard, which was a pseudonym for Ben Franklin himself, gave this advice. Be temperate in wine, in eating, girls, and cloth, or the gout will seize you and plague you both. Meanwhile, Franklin was known to relish his food, to womanize, and sometimes dress to impress people. His food and wine drinking habits led him to, uh, to be plagued with gout for much of his life, but still the positive intentions were there. The next section on the website says, make your, it says to make your own efforts. Here's what it says. Trying to be the virtuous person is what's necessary, but realize that no one is perfect. To some extent, these 13 virtues imply that you must be extremely diligent and hardworking, but also remember the saying in Poor Richard's Almanac that all work and no play make John a dull boy. What's Brendan Franklin left with at the end of this list and the end of a lifetime spent trying to make these virtues his own? Well, he can't quite live up to it. And so what does he do? He lowers the bar. Well, nobody can be perfect all the time. And nobody wants to be a dull boy. His failed attempts in a beautiful life, what do you do? You, you lower the bar. And that's one solution for us as we read Proverbs 31. Men, women, children, as we look at Proverbs 31 and say, what does it mean for me to live an embodied, wise life? One solution is to do this. We're going to aim for the stars, but in the end, we're only human after all. And so we'll be satisfied if we, get, if we make a little bit of progress, but we can't expect too much. And live wisely, live beautifully becomes try to live a little more wisely. Try to live a little more beautifully. Try to reflect a little more of this beauty in your own life. Okay, now let me tell you about a second list. Uh, if you're familiar with the uh, radio uh, show This American Life, this was a This American Life episode on superpowers. And it tells the story, the narrator tells the story, real person that she met uh, named Zora. Okay, let me tell you about Zora. She's six feet tall. Okay. Um, 
strong, beautiful. She's got this dyed blonde, red hair. When she, when this person meets her, she's got these 50 bracelets, you know, festooning. I never could use the word festooning. Festooning her arms. <laughs> and she, this narrator, the narrator, the. Uh, the reporter in the story talks about getting to know her, and Zora, it turns out, when she was 10 or 11, she started having these dreams about being a superhero, okay? And the way Zora defined a superhero is a superhero is a person who would fight for a cause. And starting at age 10 or 11, that became her goal. And she became so serious about this that at age 12, she came up with this list of 30 things that would help her reach her goal to become... as so like a superhero, as much like a superhero as a human being possibly could be. So she had this list at age 12 of 30 things. Now here are some of the things that were on that list. Martial arts, chemistry, hang gliding, airplane and helicopter pilot, mountain climbing, politics, rafting, emergency medicine, bodybuilding, archery, demolitions, and the list went on and on. Okay, so this kid, age 13, grown up, Every time she started a new journal, she would recopy the list in the front page of her new journal. And she set a goal for herself that by the age of uh, 23 that she would learn how to do all these things. And the crazy thing about this is that she did. She became all these things. She finished high school. By the time she was 15, she had a BA from a college. By the time she was 19, she finished her uh, she finished her coursework for a PhD in geopolitics by the time she was 21, at which point she left her program, got disillusioned with it because it wasn't quite the exciting superhero life she'd always imagined, studying geopolitics, writing a dissertation. So she applied for the CIA. She thought, this is the perfect job for me. She goes through months of the application process to the CIA. Now, the beautiful thing about the story is, well, I'll tell you about the beautiful thing in a minute. Months of application with CIA, she did all these background checks to interview everybody that she ever knew. She gets all this positive feedback along the way. Some, at some point, one of the interviewers says, you have the perfect personality for someone in the CIA. She's getting all excited. And about over a year into the whole process, they come back to her and they tell her that they're not going to hire her. And they don't give her a reason. And she says, for the next two years, she was just plunged into depression because this thing she had worked for and in one sense achieved didn't pay off for her. And the beautiful thing I was going to say was, if Zora had gotten into the CIA, she would have gone and trained at Camp Perry right down the road, and she would be a member of Grace Covenant. It's amazing. <laughs> we would know Zora. But here's the thing. She accomplished her list... But it didn't pay off for her. It didn't bring the things that, that she hoped it would. She was still not good enough. Now, that leaves us with us and our list. Proverbs 31. Look at verse 30. Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And this verse brings us right back to where the book of Proverbs begins. Long, long ago in chapter 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, or as it's restated in chapter 9, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the first step. It's the foundational thing. The author of Proverbs is telling us not only is it the first thing, it's the last thing. Not only is it the first word, it's the final word in the book of Proverbs too. How are we going to get a beautiful life? How are we going to live a life that reflects this kind of beauty? Only by rooting it in a relationship with this God that she fears. If you remember one of the things that we said about fearing God several weeks ago, 
fearing the Lord, that we might have this sense of awe and wonder that comes from following the one who really is God, who is high and lifted up, who is transcendent, who is so much greater than we are. But it's fear of the Lord, Yahweh, the covenantal name God gives his people. When he turns to his people, he says, you're going to call me Yahweh, and it's going to remind you that not only am I high and lifted up, but I am a God who has wed myself to you, who has bound myself to you. How are we going to live this beautiful life? Only by rooting it in a relationship with this God who is committed to us well before we are ever committed to him. Okay, now there are two ways of saying this. Let me give you the systematic theological way first. Okay? Your list in Proverbs 31 is going to crush you if you confuse your sanctification with your justification. Okay, what does that mean? Our justification, the fact that in Christ... God forgives us, stamps his righteousness on us. Justification, what God does for us. And then as Christians, what do we do? We live a life of response called sanctification. Sanctification, that whole lifelong process by which God takes us and he takes what he's declared us to be, righteous, forgiven, holy. And he makes us look more and more like that. He makes us actually act out of what he's made us now to be. He's declared us to be righteous, and now he hammers that out in all the nooks and crannies of our real life. And if you look at Proverbs 31 and confuse your justification and your sanctification, if you look at Proverbs 31 and say, at some level, if I can just be this, then, and fill in the blank, I will finally be loved. God will finally find me acceptable. I will finally make my life work so that God will work for me. If you confuse your justification and your sanctification, Proverbs 31 is going to crush you. That's a systematic theological way. Let me say it another way, the narrative relational way. If you're going to try to live this life, if you're going to try to embody this life, and if you think that somehow that's going to make God love you now, it will crush you, as we've said. Or that you're going to somehow be able to work God into a corner and be able to say, look at my list. I've done it all, and now you owe me. Whatever owing me means to you. You have to bless me. You have to save me. Your life is going to become burdensome and joyless if you live it this way, or it's going to become angry and oppressive. Because every day you are inching closer or sliding further from getting it right. And on the good days when you get it a little bit more right, you're going to feel very proud of that. In the days when you don't get it as right, you're going to slip into depression and you can't hold your head high because you haven't made the grade today. And Jesus came to rescue us from both our good days and our bad days. Our good days are never good enough. And our bad days are actually never as, never as good as we think. See, we don't need... Um, you don't need Jesus so that he can give us this shot in the arm so that we can just get a little boost up so that we can stand tall enough to be the Proverbs 31 person so that we can finally embody wisdom in our life. We don't just need this little step up. We need a whole new life. We need a whole new basis for our life, for our security, for our salvation. We need exactly what we are given in Jesus, the beauty of Jesus' life given for us, stamped onto ours exchange for the ugliness and the failure of our own. Jesus' righteousness given to us, wrapped around us, clothing us. 
We need Jesus' wise, embodied life given for us. We need Jesus who did fulfill Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31 person cares for the poor, cares for the needy. Jesus is the one who perfectly cares for the spiritually needy and the spiritually broken and poor like us. This person in Proverbs 31 clothes her family to protect them from the winter. And Jesus comes and clothes us, not simply from the elements, but from the weight and the death of our own sin. He takes it away and gives us clothing of righteousness. He clothes us with his own forgiveness, with an unbreakable love. And when we have that, Jesus for us, then we can actually begin to live a life that looks more and more like this, reflecting the wisdom of Christ, the beauty of Christ, mirroring his beauty, his forgiveness, his love that he pours out into us. Because as long as Proverbs 31 becomes for us uh, an abstract ideal or this mountain that we have to climb, it's going to crush us. But it becomes a beautiful picture of what Christ has done for us and is now doing in our lives. Then we can read a poem like this and think, may my life look more like this. I am forgiven. I am set free. And now I'm set free to begin to step into a path that leads to a life like this, that my life might really reflect this, to give honor and glory, not simply to ourselves and not to ourselves, but to Jesus, the one who stamps this on us. What is uh, a beautiful life? It's one that's stamped through with wisdom. What's it for? It's for the good of others. And how do we get it? Only by knowing the love of Jesus in this life given for us. Let's pray together. Father, we lift up to you this picture of a beautiful life. We confess that you use wrongly. The only thing you can do for us is crush us. But we thank you that because of the person and work of Jesus, because of your righteousness for us, because of your love freely given to us when we could not be this, you have set us free that we might now be free to follow and free to take faltering steps in wisdom and free to seek to please you more and to reflect in our lives more and more this, a beautiful, wise life hammered out in all the contours of our real lives with the relationships you've already given us, with the calling you've given us, with the gifts you've given us, right here in Williamsburg, right here in grad school, right here in our career, right here in our retirement, wherever you have us here, this is where you are doing the good work of bringing out this beautiful picture in our lives. And may this be true of us, that it might give glory to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.